0: This is the second episode of a new series of the BMJ Sexually Transmitted Infections podcast, and we continue to focus on issues relevant to the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Fabiola Martin, and I'm the BMJ STI podcast editor. Today we will focus on the sexual health care provision in the United Kingdom, and it is a pleasure to welcome Dr. John McSorley, Consultant Physician in Sexual Health and HIV Medicine and the president of the British Association of Sexual Health and HIV, also referred to as BASH. Good morning and welcome, John.
1: Good morning to me and good evening to you, Fabiola. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to talk.
0: John, thank you for joining us. And could you please tell us a little bit about your different roles in the NHS and at BASH?
1: Okay. Okay. Uh, So, as as current president of BASH, um, I represent a membership of about a thousand sexual health and HIV uh, workers, and we have many members from outside of the UK as well. In my day job, um, I'm a lead clinician uh, for sexual health and HIV uh, services in an NHS trust. And then as a separate hat, uh, I also sit on the clinical advisory group uh, for a London-wide organisation called Sexual Health London, uh, where we are attempting to provide sexual health services to such a diverse range uh, of people on a day-to-day basis.
0: Um, So when you look at the size and the demographics of the population you serve and which which type of sexual health services do you and your team provide?
1: So, in the day-to-day job, uh, the section of London uh, that whose population uh, I directly cover uh, is in Northwest London. Now, that's uh, the area uh, that includes Heathrow Airport, which is one of the main entry points into the city. The Populations in our area uh, are some of the most diverse um, populations in the UK. Uh, The main borough that I work in called Brent, uh, over 70% of the population are either from Black, Asian or other minority ethnic uh, backgrounds, uh, and a large proportion um, are either first generation in the UK or were born outside of the UK. And we have a huge transient population of uh, people who come to work uh, and study from all over the world. So we run a network of um, contraception and/or more complex reproductive uh, community uh, healthcare services, alongside walk-in or previously what would have been walk-in services for access to STI testing and treatment, and. Uh, we would provide a whole range of care for uh, individuals living with HIV.
0: Thank you, John. We are curious to know how the sexual health care provision in the UK has adjusted to the new reality, a highly infectious and pathogenic virus, COVID-19. I believe that before its arrival, the sexual and reproductive health and HIV health services were already rather overstretched and under-resourced due to years of public health funding cuts, applied before the start of the pandemic. What was the sexual health services situation um, when it comes to the prevalence of disease, when it comes to um, new outbreaks, when it comes to having the resources to deal with the problems, be it now uh, funding or hands, you know, people who could do the job? before the COVID-19 pandemic hit UK?
1: It is absolutely the case that at the beginning of this year, uh, the sexual health services in particular were uh, raising the alarm um, at every level across the country about the impending challenges that we had. You're absolutely correct uh, that uh, our local experience uh, within the UK had been uh, years of progressive um, cuts to investment in services. Certainly within England, um, there had been a progressive uh, removal of hundreds of millions of pounds from the public health sector, uh, particularly uh, that area that was uh, addressing sort of the needs uh, of uh, marginalized populations. And that that had taken place Under the supposed uh, political uh, need for austerity, the previous governments uh, had undervalued and undermined uh, public health services. And now that we're living through uh, an acute public health crisis, uh, those particular um, birds are coming home to roost and things are not functioning as well as they should do. Uh, in England, uh, in particular, in terms of the public health response at present. At the beginning of this year, our HIV services were attempting to provide care for the highest number of HIV-positive individuals accessing care. Now, that in part is a success story, uh, but clearly um, to maintain people's well-being, there needs to be ongoing funding. We were experiencing rising contraception needs, so also at an all-time high. And our gonorrhea diagnoses were at their highest for a generation. And syphilis uh, were back to rates not seen since the end of World War II. And perhaps uh, our most pressing uh, topic of conversation was the the rise and the need for antimicrobial resistance monitorings.
0: I guess this is why in February 2020, Bash, together with Terence Higgins Trust, published a document called The State of the Nation which uh, gives an overview of the struggles faced by sexual health services in the UK. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? You know, How many sexual health services exist in the UK and how are they funded and how sustainable were these services before the pandemic arrived?
1: So these dates back uh, over a hundred years, there was a network of free, confidential uh, and open access, no barrier, uh, services uh, developed uh, initially in some of the larger cities and a um, hundred years on growing to more or less a diverse network, meeting the need, the contraceptive and uh, sexual health needs of the population. Uh, in 2012, uh, new legislation was enacted uh, under the heading of the Lansley reforms, which uh, Potentially, this was a laudable attempt to say that uh, healthcare decision-making should be uh, delivered uh, on a locality basis, but in part, it, it tended to function as a means of separating public health from the rest of the NHS um, and placing it uh, off to one side. The Public health in particular became a target uh, for budget cutting uh, because things that we do uh, we protect uh, the well-being of people. When we're successful, no one sees what we're doing, um, but they only miss us whenever we're not there and not functioning properly. And certainly that was a, an enormous challenge, particularly from about 2016, as the UK, the England's approach to uh, austerity hit hard, uh, where many public services uh, had their resources taken away. And... Um, and it's important for all public health uh, practitioners to engage with politics because politics is everything. Um, so we went along to tell our story to MPs to, about the importance of uh, addressing the rising issues of the need for contraception, the need to address uh, rising rates of STIs and to continue to invest in our services. And that's uh, immediately that, that uh, clinical session was over. Uh, two two hours in the Houses of Parliament, Uh, we then went along as a BASH representative uh, to speak to the Medical Director of NHS England, where we began to have our first uh, conversations about, one, the challenges that were facing the sector, and two, the challenges that were beginning to appear in the background, namely uh, this virus, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. So that was the first uh, conversations that I had about sort of what our approaches to the latter um, uh, challenge would be.
0: That's great that you had, you had you know, positive feedback or traction and people understood because I think we all understand now more and more how much the people within their healthcare force and public health sector are important, you know. And, you know, specifically related to COVID-19, were there many cases in your local area, and did, did you know? Did it have any wider impact on the on the health services you and your team work in, or was it you know elsewhere, but you just had to adjust as well?
1: Our area for London was at the epicenter of the initial wave, um, the last uh, weeks of March and into the beginning of April. Uh, the hospitals transformed daily, uh, The going from having uh, one or two cases within the hospital to, by the end of the week, a COVID ward. And by the end of the second week, where one of the main hospital sites essentially had been cleared of all other uh patients uh, and almost entirely devoted to COVID itself with the uh, rapid extension and expansion uh, of uh, COVID ICUs. Uh, Indeed, one of our hospitals was the the hospital Northwick Park uh, that temporarily uh, became overwhelmed with the number of cases of covid but to their credit, uh, all the surrounding large hospitals in northwest London uh, opened up their ICUs over the course of the night in uh, such that the um, closure uh, of the service was only for twelve hours, and the major incident of being overwhelmed uh, was stood down quite quickly. But it certainly was the case that uh, our area was very badly hit. Uh, we experienced the largest proportion of healthcare practitioner associated deaths uh, in England. Um, So I think that all of our staff currently are coping with the knowledge that some of their colleagues are no longer with us. Um, And also the experience of working on wards uh, in the very early days of COVID, uh, recognising that uh, many patients died under their care so there have been uh, very many personal tragedies, uh, significant clinical and other psychological uh, challenges that we've all had to cope with. But at the same time, there has been immense success. And the um, the hospital network as a whole uh, immediately engaged in uh, systematic analysis and entry of uh, uh, patients into as many... Uh, clinical trials as is possible and certainly were participant uh, in many of the clinical trials that uh, uh, have informed the COVID response thus far.
0: It's breathtaking to listen to you because it's just um, unbelievable how quickly people had to respond to something so new where we didn't know the death rate, we did not know the outcome for different age groups and uh, Yet again, whenever I look at data coming from UK, I'm really impressed with how the healthcare force um, try to manage the situation while looking after themselves at the same time. So all over the country, the sexual health services had to adjust and consolidation and restriction arrangements were, I guess, the new buzzwords. So, John, how were these adjustments planned?
1: I think planning is a relative term. <laughs> um, I think there are some things that are useful. I think that at the point where you realize that this is on us, namely it is our responsibility to get going and uh, create a response that is as best and as good as it can be, um, the, you have to throw some things away. Perfectionism goes out the window. Uh, you recognize that you have to start where you are Um, there's no point decrying the the lack of this or the lack of that. You just have to set off from where you are and do the best possible things that you can do. I think communication is key. um, And uh, really what characterised the local responses that I was involved in was open collaboration. All boundaries between healthcare workers uh, just disappeared overnight. Um, the people locked inside, uh, this is my specialty or this is my organization or this is my way of working, actually there was a complete and uh, immediate understanding that this is something that faces and addresses us all and there needs to be a wholesale conversation which says what do we do for these circumstances that are arising and what are the best possible responses to them. daily conversations about issues arising uh, as many people involved in the collaborations as possible because everybody has something to bring. Uh, Everybody will see something different and everybody has something significant to contribute. Uh, We accepted that it was going to be an imperfect rolling process of continued response and development. Uh, Certainly for sexual health services, uh, Uh, We started where lead clinicians across the country, uh, we knew that we'd all have simultaneous pieces of work to do, namely developing standard operating procedures for X, Y, and Z. So that became a process of open document sharing. So just people writing what they had, or posting what they had written thus far, such that everybody else could come in, cut and paste what they needed, but equally add to it. And uh, certainly the... um, the pandemic response document for sexual health services grew out of that process and they, certainly we used the BASH website uh, as an open hosting document. We made that website available free to access for anyone uh, across the whole system who may be interested in sexual health and all contribute into the documents. Many of the documents that we posted were interim or draft, uh, and then once they were developed further, we removed them and uh, replaced them with the subsequent iterations. And we produced as many guidances uh, on as many issues as people asked us to produce guidance for. And that's still an ongoing process. And I think that it's it's one of the elements of the way in which we interact that we would wish to preserve hereafter.
0: Yeah. So... Open communication, shared leadership, and um, that, that was the key for adjusting and making things happen in such a short period of time. And the situation was already difficult for sexual health provision, you know, before the pandemic came. So now it is, it is quite stretched and um, every day, I guess, brings new challenges. You mentioned the UK pandemic response for the sexual health service. And I picked up in a previous conversation, the digital first sexual health service. Do you, could you, could you tell us a little bit more about these?
1: Our sexual health services, uh, very much are based on around the way in which they've always run, which is primarily face-to-face. And perhaps as in the wider context, uh, this element of the care that we provide perhaps hadn't fully embraced or fully utilized the potential for um, distance care, namely the provision of telemedicine or telehealth. And the particular challenges of the pandemic, as we looked at them in the end of February, beginning of March, raised the question of if we are going to be so adversely impacted such that we may lose uh, all of our face-to-face provision. And the digital first sexual health service was uh, our immediate request that went into government to ask for funding to rapidly build up the mechanisms for providing distance care. So that would be investment in IT for provision of advice signposting direction on decently uh, enabled uh, modern looking websites but also trying to invest in online services uh, making uh, optimizing our postal options of posting tr- uh, treat tests and treatment out to people uh, and interfacing that with telemedicine so conversations with uh, experienced practitioners initially primarily over the telephone but also looking at uh, newer mechanisms such as digital imaging platforms and I think it was about uh, asking government for the resource to ensure that uh, they, all of the services right across the four nations of the UK were appropriately resourced to maximise the capacities that telemedicine had to offer and uh, that has been a partial success. The, the Bash Clinical Thermometer, where we're constantly sampling services, is an attempt to hold the government to account by enumerating and uh, outlining sort of what how services have got have progressed and to what degree everybody across the country has accessed the same quality of services. Uh, because eradicating the geographical inequalities uh, of access to healthcare. Is just as important uh, as many of the other issues. And this was a good opportunity to attempt to undo some of the long standing ingrained geographical inequalities that exist uh, in healthcare access.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, we have these issues in Australia also, as you can imagine, with the big distances between big cities um, and specialist access. Um, so, was BASH able to also look at which core population these new arrangements served best um, and which population maybe didn't engage with this, you know, where maybe insisting on a face-to-face uh, encounter?
1: So absolutely. I think this is a, still a work in progress. What, is, what was interesting was that as we were planning for the reduction of services, in fact, as the population went into lockdown, there was a simultaneous reduction in actual need for some of the sexual health um, services per se. Uh, we saw uh, capacity for us to provide services drop by about two thirds, albeit at its uh, nadir Uh, demand for services actually dropped by twofold that so we never reached a point where we were unable to provide anything however the area where we became most stretched was in the services capacity to risk assess and provide uh, sexual health care to what we might call vulnerable populations so those are inclusion populations uh, so populations that historically are disadvantaged in terms of access to health services overall, uh, but also that there were some new issues that did arise. Um, when we looked across the populations that continued to access services, we saw something very interesting, uh, perhaps counterintuitive, in that the digital natives, the under 25s, were the group who were least likely to contact uh, telemedicine services, really? and they, <laughs> which, surprising. So, which was absolutely the case. Some of that relates to the reasons as to how young people engage. Now, in mm-hmm. part, some of that was that they were locked down in their houses with their parents.
0: Uh-huh. So, <laughs> Makes and
1: sense. Per- perhaps somebody else had control over their um, access to the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of their parents may have been at home um, uh, interacting with them. Uh, but their ability to make phone calls, and or the, it, it, it is testament to the importance of human interaction for young people. So they, they often need trusted faces, trusted voices, uh, uh, or people that they know and recognize or even to attend services in little groups of friends in order to begin the conversations and then once they have engaged in those conversations, uh, then they're up and running and actually their their ability to text, to email, to um, engage in telemedicine is very good once the first contact has been made. the, the loss of that ability to make a face-to-face first contact uh, clearly was very impactful on young, on young people in particular. And certainly it's become a priority for most of our sexual health services to attempt to restore those first point of contact services for young people as we gradually re- stand up the services per se. But we also saw um, populations where language is an issue is very challenging for people whose first language is not english we've seen huge problems and challenges for uh, people whose communication skills are limited so the populations with perhaps learning disabilities or populations who uh, have difficulty hearing or uh, are deaf or have other physical characteristics that uh, require extra supported engagement with services that has been very challenging um, the and then some of our populations per se, who we know uh, ha, are consistently at risk of acquiring STIs, found lockdown very damaged, very harmful. There's certainly emerging evidence uh, that uh, there's been an increase in experiences of uh, domestic violence uh, uh, and/or sexual and uh, violence within relationships that um, are in contexts where the wider social strains caused by lockdown has been very limiting and very inhibiting. Um, We experienced uh, increased need uh, for, uh, in populations, consistently at risk of sexually transmitted infections. So particularly in some of our core populations, say our gender and sexual minorities, particularly people who had been engaged in uh, commercial sex work. So the stress on that economy uh, has led to challenges, for example, in London, where there's greater competition uh, for commercial sex work and uh, where people engaged in commercial sex work have had to engage in either riskier practices uh, or get into more risky circumstances and at at the same time unable to articulate uh, the situations that they were in for fear of uh, breaching lockdown regulations so that was a a, a clear problem.
0: So one solution doesn't fit all and uh, you need to kind of strategize the different resources and solutions that you have. And I guess also the healthcare provider had to kind of adjust to the different ways of, you know, providing care. I can just tell you personally, um, it it took me by surprise to see how little I could remember the story of a patient if I had just had the first encounter on the phone. So how much I relied on the facial recognition and the association of the story with the face that I saw next. Yeah, it has been a huge learning, a steep learning curve for all of us. John, I think we're coming to the end of our podcast. It is astonishing what you, your team, the NHS, the public health, um, all healthcare professionals have achieved in such a short period of time, though it doesn't feel short. It it is really short, a few months only. And um, looking at the new systems and protocols in place, which one do you think are keepers? I mean, which new services do you think are innovations which should be implemented long-term?
1: So I certainly think that uh, telemedicine is beginning to come of age, but uh, the, and the provision of distance solutions uh, are extremely important and technology is is always going to be part of that care. Um, I think that we're experiencing something of a mini-revolution in the UK as we engage with that. I fully recognise that many other countries and areas are much further ahead because they've been uh, dealing with the the challenges of distance care for much longer. Um, I think it's important that our approaches should be one of continual learning, continued assessment of what it is that we're doing, and continued review of which elements of uh, each aspect of care best fits the population uh, that we serve. And I think that uh, it's really important that we, certainly in the UK, look to go back to where we were. We need to develop this broad panoply of approaches and strategies and opportunities uh, and workforces uh, that we have in order to try and best support the population as a whole. Uh, will be these will all be things that we will look forward to all of the um, STI uh, readers uh, analyzing in their own practice and then publishing uh, really exciting data to teach us all what it is that we all have to do going forward.
0: Yeah, so to sum it up, it's um, one thing is having needing to leave your silo and communicate and connect, so those connections between. Healthcare workers within the specialty, with uh, charities, with the community, with other healthcare workers have been strengthened. And um, a need for ongoing, um, never tiring evaluation of whatever is being implemented to improve um, the next round of delivery.
1: Everybody's doing an amazing job, and they just need to keep on doing it.
0: Definitely. <laughs> and um, well, Thank you so much for your time, effort to provide us with this very informative and exciting and sobering summary. Um, on behalf of the BMJ podcast team, I thank you and all our colleagues for the heroic work and I hope all of you stay safe and healthy. Thank you. We all thank you for listening and hope you can follow the STI BNJ on Twitter and Facebook. Stay safe and thank you for all your efforts to reduce the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Goodbye.